Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Happy New Year. A little bit early. Did you all have a good holiday? Did you have a good Christmas? Excellent. Good, 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 good. I'm hoping most of you did. Hope all of you did. Um, if you're new, every December, Brad and I kind of split a four-part series. Um, and this year, we decided to do one called Let There Be Light. And we've been talking about the metaphor of light and how it's the number one metaphor used to describe the entrance of Christ into the, uh, into the world. Um, we felt like that we needed to close with this talk today, which would not only be a closure to the whole holiday season, but a great segue into the new year. You know, this is our last weekend of 2014. You can write that down if you want to, okay? Um, and so I want to talk about the, uh, the, um, how light and being exposed to light completely paves the way into the future. Okay, um, A number of years ago, I was invited to speak for what they called a spiritual emphasis week at Indiana Wesleyan University. I've been there a number of times, great faculty, great student body there, and so I was going to speak nine times within the matter of five days, and I chose the topic of the power of God and what it means to experience the power of God, not just back in Bible times, but today. Well, I'll never forget the second service. It was Monday night. Um, At the end of the talk, we'd been talking about the power of God, and I decided to give an invitation to any student or staff or faculty that wanted to come forward and just be prayed for to experience the power of God in their life in a specific area of need. One young student stood up, and he was well-built. I noticed because he was pretty big, uh, walked forward, and he had an entourage of students walking forward with him to pray with him. So I met him down front, and I learned that his name was Daryl. And I said, Daryl, what can I pray for you about? And Daryl looked up at me and said, well, you've just been talking about the power of God. I need to see it in my life. And I knew I was in for something here. I said, tell me what's up. And he told me that he was a runner on the track team there at IWU and that he had to stop running because um, the doctors had found cancer in his right leg. In fact, it had spread very rapidly and had been discovered so late that it was completely through his right upper leg, and they had planned to amputate his leg at the end of that week. Well, I realized this was a biggie. This was not a headache. This was not a sniffles and cold. This was a big deal. And so we bowed our heads in the entourage, and I and Daryl prayed for his cancer together. When we got done, I wanted to offer just a little bit of a consolation. And so I I said, Daryl, if it's any consolation, I am wrestling with a a disease too for which there is no cure. I have type 1 diabetes. He looked at me and said, oh, I've got that too. So I thought, bless his heart, he's battling on all fronts. So I hugged him and I said, I'm going to keep praying for you. And I sent him on his way. Well, a couple of nights later, I walked into the chapel for the next meeting. And there was Daryl sitting in the lobby with both legs. 
And I walked in, I gave him a big hug, and I said, Darrell, what are you doing here? You know, Mr. Faith here, you know. You're supposed to get your leg cut off. What are you doing here, you know? And Daryl said, Dr. Tim, that's just it. He said, I went into the doctor for the pre-op, and they do the, the checkup to confirm everything that they're about to do. And when they take an x-rays and they looked at his leg, they discovered that the cancer had not only stopped growing, it had shrunk to almost nothing. And they said, there's no way we're going to amputate this leg which was really cool. And so I said, well, Daryl, I, I, I bet that made you, I bet you felt fantastic. That was such great news. And he said, well, actually, I felt kind of weird. Like physically, I had to sit down and I was feeling really, really strange. And he said, when the nurses checked me out uh, and then the doctors checked me out, we discovered that with one fell swoop of God's hand, God had healed the cancer and the diabetes all in one day, that particular day. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lord. So I tell you, I'm telling you today, outside of Daryl, there was no one more excited about that healing. But I got to acknowledge something. When I went to bed that night, I said, Lord, thank you for healing Daryl's cancer and diabetes. Thank you for using me to be one prayer in his life. But I still got diabetes. (laughs) What the heck's going on here, you know? And I bet you, you've had that experience too in some way, shape, or form, where you've seen God show up in someone's life and you go, what about me? What am I, chopped liver, you know? Or maybe it's the opposite. You were blessed in an immeasurable way, a miraculous way. The only way you could explain it is that was a miracle. That had to be my heavenly father intruding into my life and doing something great. And yet you see someone else that didn't get it. And sometimes it makes you question, what's going on here? Is God not fair? My guess is every one of you have asked at some point, how could such a good God let bad things happen to good people? We, we, we seem to be in a mixture, don't we, of, of good and bad in this world, where we know that God must be around because there is good, but yet we see the darkness and we wonder how. It's a combination of provision and poverty, health and sickness, light and dark, laughter and sadness. And sometimes we can't explain it especially to an outsider that's never experienced the goodness that we seem to have experienced. And so today in this talk, I'd like to address this issue. And I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't even think I'll answer all your questions. But I want to look at how light maybe explains what's going on. And I want to look at two passages of Scripture that are paramount for us to understand this. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to grab them. And I want you to open, first of all, to a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have your Bible, we're going to put this up on the screen in just a moment. Um, But I want to look at this because I think this might just begin to um, shed some light on on, on this issue. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul is used by God to write this text. 2,000 years ago, and in this text, Paul is talking about the Old Testament saints, the Hebrews, God's people in the Old Testament, and how they had grumbled and complained about the mixture of dark and light, goodness and badness, and in their grumbling, they were punished for it. And then Paul says these words, and if you look at the screen, here they are. Paul writes, these things happened to them as examples And were written down as warnings for us. On whom, now look at this next phrase. The culmination of the ages has come. May I read that again? On whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, I want to underscore that phrase I read twice. Did you notice he, Paul, said, we, today 
are the people who are standing at the culmination of the ages. Several translations translate it the ends of the ages. Notice he uses the term plural, not singular. He didn't say the end of the age or the culmination of the age. He said the culmination of the ages. Now, we may not understand this, but every Jewish person reading this text fully understood. Because in the Bible, there are two ages that are commonly spoken about. One is called this present age. And if you'll notice, even a cursory reading of the scripture, you'll see several times the the Bible talks about this present age. We're living in this current age. But then the Bible talks about the age to come. This present age began the moment that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden fell into sin. In other words, they were experiencing wonderful innocence and light and life. And then when they disobeyed God, we began this present age, which was a mixture of darkness intruding into the wonderful light. And afterwards, there was conflict and suspicion and killing and all the stuff you and I see on the news every day. This present age began in the Garden of Eden at that point and continues on until Christ returns. But watch this. When Jesus came to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he ushered in the age to come. So right now, you and I are living in a mixture of this present age and the age to come. In fact, I have a diagram. George Eldon Ladd is an incredible theologian that I've been helped by many, many times. And on the screen, he, he, he gives us this simple diagram that may just explain and help you understand what's going on. He talks about the already and the not yet. You and I are living in the midst of the already and the not yet. If you'll notice, this present age is that line that's up top there that started way back in the Garden Eden and continues on but until Christ returns sometime later. But if you'll notice, when he came the first time, the bottom line, he began the age to come. And it will continue on until later. But you and I are living between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Well, now there's a blend. And I think you would admit that when Jesus came, he ushered in the experience of the, of the age to come. Many people got a taste of what heaven would be like. Several people were healed. Many people were delivered from bondage. Some were even raised from the dead. I'd say that's a taste of the age to come, wouldn't you? But wouldn't you also not agree? Jesus didn't heal everybody. In fact, case in point, if you read the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church after Jesus went back to heaven, there was a lame man that stood at the, or, 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 or sat at the gates of the temple every day since he was born, which meant he was there every single day Jesus showed up at the temple, never got healed. He was on that day when Peter and John saw him, lifted him up, and healed him of his, of his lameness. But the point was this. That man was there when Jesus was around. He never got healed. Just like me with my diabetes. What's the, what the heck's going on? So as we sit here today, December 2014, we are living at the culmination of the ages where we're still living in conflict and unemployment, demonstrations in Ferguson, Missouri, cancer and HIV and Ebola, All kinds of stuff that you go, what in the world is going on? Well, God would say, I'll tell you what's going on. You're living in this present age that you all ushered in, thank you very much, in the Garden of Eden. But I have come, and I've given you a glimpse, a taste of the age to come. And now you just need to know you're in the middle of a war, a spiritual war, where you're going to see glimpses of light, but lots of darkness. You're going to see, you're going to taste this, but you're still going to taste that. And I think you would agree that's a fairly good explanation of what you and I feel. 
Some of you had marvelous Christmas vacations with family. It was just wonderful. Others of you, if you gave a testimony, you'd say it was okay at best. There was a mixture of this current age with all the conflict that goes with it and the weirdness and and everything else. So you and I today, I believe, can set a goal. As we enter 2015, I believe one of the greatest goals we can set is, Lord, help me taste as much of the age to come as I can in this next year. Help me to live understanding I'm living in this current age, but help me to reach out and grab hold of all of the age to come that's possible. And use me, God, as an instrument to introduce as much of this age to come as I possibly can to others. With all the supernatural stuff that God gives us. Case in point, every now and then I get to taste the age to come, and it's marvelous. You, you, you would agree. I bet you every one of you could share stories of how you tasted the goodness of God, and the only way you could explain it is that was an, invent, that was an intervention of, the, of my Heavenly Father. But two weeks ago, I went to my bank. I was going to make a transaction that was large enough that I wanted, to, I wanted to do it in person, not online. So I sat down with one of the supervisors at, at my bank and we began to small talk as she got up on the computer and started making the transaction. And we started saying Merry Christmas and what were you going to do for Christmas. And as we were small talking, I felt, I felt prompted to ask this woman who I have never met before about her dad and specifically her dad's health. And so I simply innocently said, hey, tell me about your dad's health. All of a sudden, she stopped typing on the computer. Her eyes got really big as she looked right into my eyes. And she said, how did you know? Well, before I could answer, she said, I just got an email this morning from my sister. My dad's been severely, he's, he's ill and he's been rushed into the hospital and she, he's out of the country. And she said, after my shift, I'm going to hop on a plane and go back and see him. And I'm so amazed. How did you know? And this time she let me answer. And I said, well, I, I didn't know. But I said, I should tell you. The most important thing in my life is my relationship to God. And I believe he must have just prompted me to share two things with you. Number one, he knows and cares about you. And number two, he's just prompted me to begin to pray for you. Well, you can imagine she got very emotional. And that opened up the door to an amazing conversation that had nothing to do with bank accounts and numbers. In fact, we got out of the book of numbers, got into the book of Acts really quick. I want you to know that. Now... I wish I could tell you that happened every day. Wouldn't that be cool? Bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. Wish I could say I'd done that, but it doesn't. But isn't it cool when it happens, when you know that wasn't me, that was God. And somehow my brain stopped long enough for God to intrude and do something or say something or, or somehow bless somebody. And that's what I think he wants. I think when Jesus came the first time, he gave us a bunch of glimpses of what life could look like. He knew things that he shouldn't know. He did things that the average human couldn't do. And I think he's saying, I want me to live through you and for you to usher in these glimpses of the love of God and the, and the power of God into the lives of ordinary mortals who had never seen this before. That's what I want to live. Isn't that how you want to live? And I think it's possible. But we have to know we're living in a world of war Spiritual war, conflict, but we're tasting as much as possible glimpses and and tastes of this wonderful age that will one day fully prevail in a new heaven and a new earth. All right, so with that said, I think the big looming question is, well, how do we do it? How do we live this way? How do we usher in this wonderful new age, this age to come in the midst of this dark present age? Good question. That's where the next passage comes in. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open now backwards to the book of Romans. 
Um, Romans is just ahead of 1 Corinthians. And I want to read a, a text out of Romans 13. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Paul the Apostle has written this as well under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he, he gives a challenge, a very practical step-by-step challenge on how to live in this light, this new age, this age to come. I'm going to put it on the screen. Here it is, Romans 13, starting with verse 11. Paul says, and now do this, or in other words, live this way that he's just been talking about in Romans chapter 13. Understanding the present time, or may I use this present age. Understanding this present age. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Uh, Can we substitute the word the age to come? The age to come is nearer now than when we first believed. The night, the darkness, is nearly over. The day, the light, is almost fully here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us behave decently as in the daytime, the light. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. But rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, if you're like me, you sense a note of urgency there, don't you? It's almost like he's compelling us. He's challenging us. It's it's an urgent message. And I don't think it's a message to live in the fast lane. I simply think it's a message to say, be fully engaged whatever lane you're in. But he gives us very clear steps in this passage to live with perspective to, to fully embrace as much as possible this age to come, even though we live in this present age. He talks about dark and lightness. He talks about current reality and future reality, all in this single text. Next month, as we enter the new year, we're going to enter the month of January. It was named after a Greek god who had a Greek statue right outside of Athens. The god was named Janus. It was a male god, spelled J-A-N-U-S. But Janus was a figure that was very, very, very telling and very instructive, if you will, to the Greeks who looked at it. Because it had a normal body, but up top it had two heads. One head that was looking backwards, one head that was looking forwards. One that could review the past year and one that could preview the upcoming year. In other words, what a great way to start the new year. We're able to reflect on the past, what didn't get done, that should have gotten done, what happened that shouldn't have happened. And then looking ahead to the new year, what needs to get done, what needs to happen for us to, 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 to grow closer to the Lord. It's interesting, the Greeks also had another statue just outside of Athens. On the road into Athens 2,000 years ago, there was a statue that was actually called Opportunity. And it was called opportunity because, once again, it had a very normal-looking body from toe to neck. But the head was very strange. The head had long, flowing hair coming down the front of the face. But it was completely bald in the back. And it served as a constant reminder to every Greek, you could grab opportunity when it was coming at you, but you could never, you could never get a hold of it once it had passed by. Again, these were just... These were instructional in nature. They were reminding the Greeks, live with a sense of urgency. Be fully engaged. Be fully awake. The day is almost here. 
So in this text, I want to simply give you three words that I think summarize the entire piece that Paul was attempting to communicate. And if you're making mental notes or if you're taking notes, I simply ask you to write down three words that I think are our to-do list as we enter 2015. Are you ready? Here we go. The first word can be found immediately in the text, and it's simply the word awaken. Awaken. Did you notice Paul writes here and he says, do you see the time? Are you, are you understanding the time that we're in, this current age? Are you seeing where we are in the segment of time called this current age? The time is at hand. In fact, he says, be alert, wake up. In fact, I love the phrase, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And you remember I kind of retranslated that. The age to come is nearer to us when they first believed. But my guess is you've read that text before and thought, what do you mean salvation is nearer to me? I'm already saved. I thought I got saved back in 1989. You did. But salvation is a process, not just an event. And the best way I can describe it for you is it's like the current age and age to come. When we think about salvation, we have already been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin right now. And we will ultimately be saved from the presence of sin completely when the age to come fully comes. One day, believe it or not, the scripture indicates you and I are going to experience a life that is free from this conflict, that are free from the hiding and the suspicion and the, and the, and the, the war and the disease and the sickness and the sin. It's going to be fully eradicated. But right now, we're living in a time where it's a mix It's an incredible mix of both. And Paul's simply saying, the first step you've got to take is be fully awake to what I'm doing, God says. Wake up, be alert. Now, let me tell you what I think he means. I don't think he's talking about physically waking up. There are times when we need to be asleep. But I think he's talking about a spiritual astuteness. If you're like me, you go through long stretches of your day where you're pretty much living on cruise control. In fact, we have to. We have to live out of the subconscious where we put routines and ruts and habits down into our subconscious and we just go through the motions. You brush your teeth without thinking about it. At least I hope you do. You you do several things in your life where you just, you don't have to think about it. But Paul says we're living in danger of doing much of our life, even when God wants us to have our eyes open and our antennas up for opportunities. We still live in this stupor. And Paul's saying, I'm, I'm imploring you, wake up, be fully engaged. So can I give you an application? As you enter 2015, why not resolve to say in any situation, even the habitual situations I find myself in, at work, at Starbucks, at the grocery store, the gas station, I'm going to have my antennas up for any opportunity where I can shed light and somehow be an instrument of the age to come for these people around me. That's hard. I get in routines. And even though I am a follower of Jesus, you could not tell it sometimes. I'm ashamed to say. I'm not robbing banks or committing adultery or killing anybody. I'm just, I'm in my own groove. I'm, I'm pretty much self-absorbed. In fact, let me confess a sin to you. A few years ago, I remember being called by a friend. Lori was her name. She called me late at night. I was already in my pajamas. I was ready to go to bed and call it a day. She said, Tim... I need you to get down to the hospital right now. I, I, I know it's late, but she said, a friend of mine, also named Tim, has just been a tragic motorcycle accident on the freeway without a helmet. This was in California. 
Well, I, I said, I'll, I'll be right down, Lori. And as I was driving down, I need to confess to you, I was tired. I was ready to end the day, not start the day of ministry. And so I thought, you know what? I'll show up and I'll, I'll love on this family and, and, and pray for this guy named Tim. And then I'm, I'm going to get out of there. Well, I quickly realized when I got to the intensive care unit where he was that his family was sitting outside and they had no connection at all to God or the church or anything like that. They were living as outsiders in darkness and they were pretty much depressed over this whole thing because their son Tim was now connected to machines that were keeping him alive. I mean, there were tubes everywhere and bandages and so forth. He was unconscious and they were literally keeping him alive by the machines. Well, I met them all, and I listened to what had happened. I, I, I cried with them, and it was, it was very, very tragic. But then I knew what I needed to do was go in and, and pray for Tim. And again, I was pretty much just going through the motions. I didn't say that, but you know what I mean. I was doing my pastoral duties. And so I walked in with a family following me, and we stood around the bed where Tim lay unconscious. And uh, we bowed our heads, and I said, let's pray. And I just prayed a prayer. It wasn't very eloquent. It was pretty much phrases I'd prayed before for other sick people, but I got my duty done and I started to walk out the door. Now, I'm ashamed of this, but God quickly stopped me just before I got out of the ICU. I don't know if you've ever been stopped by God, but it's like walking into a wall. It is. It's not tangible physically, but it's very tangible emotionally and spiritually. And I had to stop walking. And I remember at this point, in a quiet, even silent way, I'm now interacting with my Heavenly Father. Now, I know this may sound strange to some of you. It's not an audible voice. I'm not hearing voices in my head, okay? But I'm sensing the prompting of the Holy Spirit that I needed to stop, and I needed to go back. In fact, God said to me in His own quiet way, now I want you to go back and really pray. Well, I had a little uh, argument with God right at that point. I said, Lord, what am I going to do? I've already prayed. They said it was a nice prayer. They said it was a nice prayer. <laughs> Sounded very poetic, they said. Made them feel better. Kind of like a Hallmark card, you know? And, and I just knew the Lord, he said it again. Go back and really pray. And I knew what God was saying was, I had just gone through the motions. The pastoral, the, the Christian thing to do. But there was no release of faith. There was no trust. There was no engagement. Come on, we've all done this, haven't we? Kind of the little boy that prayed at night before he went to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's just going through the motions, okay? So that's what I've done. I've just gone through the motions. So now I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Go back and say, hey, can we pray again? The first one didn't take, you know? I mean, what am I going to say? But I thought, I've got to do this. So I went back and I very politely said, hey, I know we just prayed, but would you mind if we prayed again? Well, this family was so great. They said, sure, if one's good, two's better. Let's join hands this time, you know? So now they knew enough about spiritual. Let's join hands. So we bowed our heads. And this time I prayed a prayer that wasn't any more eloquent. But this time I really engaged. I believe there was a sense of, God, show up now. Show them that you're alive and well. Demonstrate your power. I didn't say it, but what I was really saying was show them, give them a taste of the age to come. Well, I must admit... I opened my eyes after the prayer, kind of half hoping Tim would hop up out of the bed and say, I'm awake here, you know, but that didn't happen. But anyway, at least I was able to walk out of the intensive care unit knowing I had really engaged God in prayer. I thought that would be the end of the story, except less, about, about two days later, I get another call from Lori. 
Lori says, Tim, you need to get down to the hospital again. I said, what? Is it worse? She said, no, it's better. And that's when she told me that Tim in the intensive care unit who was hooked up to machines that were keeping him alive and that particular day they were going to make a decision. Do we keep him on the machines or do we unplug it and let him die naturally? Tim woke up out of his coma, completely awake and said, where am I? The family gathered around, the doctors gathered around with their clipboard and they did not have an explanation except a miracle had happened. And all I'm saying to you is, I wish that happened every day of my life. It doesn't. But wasn't it cool for this family to get a taste of the age to come? Needless to say, they were in church the next Sunday, every one of them. And they continued to come because they had tasted what the Almighty can do. I'm just saying, even in tiny ways, God wants to use us ordinary people who don't have the answers, who don't know what we're doing, who sometimes get caught up in going through the motions. If we'll just wake up, who knows what he might do? Who knows? All right, so that's the first word, awaken. The second to-do list, or the second actionable item, is the word abandon. Abandon. Did you notice in verse 12, he talks about laying aside the deeds of darkness. If you're fully a participant in the age to come, and we are, lay aside those deeds that don't reflect that. Put that behavior, that conduct that doesn't reflect light aside. He even calls it the deeds of darkness. That's very interesting, isn't it? The deeds of this present age. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do anything that non-Christians do. It simply means that we're laying aside those things that would not give them a hint that we belong to Jesus. Now, our English word, lay aside, is actually a gentle term. The term that was used in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek, was much stronger. It was actually the same word that religious leaders used in that day when they would excommunicate someone from the synagogue. Someone that had been so wrong in their lifestyle that they shut the door and would not even let them in. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying basically, and let's take this personally now, hey Roman Christians, you know those things that you do, those behaviors, those habits, may I say it, those pet sins that you continue to allow in your life, excommunicate them, fully shut the door. And by the way, the reason I think we need to underscore this today is we don't do this very well. In a day of, of political correctness where we don't say anything too harsh, we don't say anything that strong, Paul is saying there are certain things in our life we have to be a strong no about. And yes, other people will see it as judgment. You're not meeting as judgment. You're simply saying, for me, I can't do that. I'm not judging you. I just can't do that. There have been many, many things in my life, I won't go into them now, where I've just made a decision that while I never judge other people, I can't participate in that particular option, lifestyle option. And I believe God's saying, I'm challenging you as you enter 2015 to search your heart and ask yourself, are there any behaviors in my life that really aren't Christ-like? They don't give anybody a clue that I belong to him. In fact, quite the opposite. I might as well be belong to the age of darkness. Excommunicate them. Put them aside. That's hard, isn't it? But I believe that's exactly what he's saying here in this text. Um, there's a tradition, a custom that's gone on for centuries in the nation of Italy. You know, the Italians are great people. They're very passionate and have great food. Would you agree? Okay. Um, 
I got to go to Italy a few years back, and I'll never forget hearing people expound on this tradition that they'd had. I don't know if it still goes on today, but for centuries, at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, you did not want to be walking the streets of any major Italian city because at midnight on December 31st, doors would fly open, windows would be thrown up, and objects would be thrown out onto the street from the house. Any object that carried with it a negative memory from the past year, they just toss it. It might be a magazine or a book they'd read or a piece of furniture or a vase or a spouse. Just kidding. Just kidding. But, but don't you love this? In other words, if there was an object that said, that does not reflect where I want to go this next year, they just chuck it, excommunicate it, you might say, as if to say, out with the old and in with the new. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Don't sign for those things anymore. Let's engage fully as much as we can with this new life. So I'm going to go on, but let me just say this. You're smart people. You don't need me to elaborate. Paul did, he happened to in this text. He said debauchery and sexual immorality and drunkenness. You know the deal. There are certain things you can exercise as a Christian. Say, well, I'm still going to heaven. I just kind of do this. It's just my little deal. God's just saying, if you want me to fully use you, I am requesting that you excommunicate that from your life and fully engage with the age to come. That's word number two. The third word that I want to give you, I think is given in the last passage, the last scripture of this text. And it's simply the word adorn. Adorn. The first thing he says is, wake up, for now the age to come is nearer to us than ever before. Abandon those things that are part of the dark side. And then he says, and instead, put on, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's very hard for me to get rid of an old habit unless I replace it with a new habit. Would you agree with that? And that's what he's saying here. I'm calling you to excommunicate, but don't just leave a vacuum there. Put on in its place the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love this term because in the original Greek language, the term adorn was a theatrical term. Literally meant just as an actor assumes the costume of a character in a stage play where you put on the costume and then you assume the interests of that character and the language of that character. And the lifestyle or habits of that character. He's saying, do that with Jesus. Be an actor and assume the costume and the very interest and behaviors of Jesus. Wow, that's interesting. Meaning, our lives should look more like Jesus in 2015 than they did in 2014. Many of you sitting here listening just watched a play behind me called The Glory of Christmas. Some of you have been to every Glory of Christmas since they first began. But every year, Northridge puts on this incredible thing, The Glory of Christmas. And you saw, many of you saw, people that you know from this church family dressing up in costume and singing or acting. That's exactly what it was. They were assuming a character in a stage play that reminded us of the meaning of the season. He sang just like that. Assume the character of Christ. Put him on. I know he's on the inside. Thank you very much. Now put him on the outside. By the way, just like the glory of Christmas, I was a pastor at a church in San Diego, I've mentioned this before, that did a Christmas production. We didn't call it the glory of Christmas. We called it the living Christmas tree. 
And the living Christmas tree was much like what Northridge does. It's, a, it's full of music and Christmas and acting and so forth. And one particular year, I'll never forget, we decided to reenact the, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Not surprising, but we decided to pull out the stops. We brought in, we brought in animals from Bethlehem. Okay, so we had sheep and donkeys. And I'll never forget, as we marched the, the, the Bethlehem animals across the stage, the donkey decided to leave a deposit on the stage. Yeah, right there, in the middle of the, right there in the middle of the show. I mean, there we were singing about Jesus, and all of a sudden, plop, plop, there it was, okay? Well, the audience immediately thought, oh my gosh, what's going on here, you know, and just so forth. But what was really funny was to watch the choir. They were doing their darndest to keep singing, when the you know, actors are navigating their way around the little <laughs> droppings there. And finally, they couldn't do it. And one person started laughing. And then they all just, they couldn't finish the song. They started laughing. Well, then everybody just burst out laughing because we all knew what was going on. And, we, you know, there's an elephant in the room. Let's talk about it, you know. Well, between shows that particular day, the director had to give them a long speech. He was pretty angry. And the speech was about staying in character. Exactly. And you all know it, even if you're not an actor. Staying in character means when something happens in the show that wasn't according to plan, instead of getting mad, losing your lines, dropping your lines, or laughing, you stay at it. You stick to the script. And, and pardon me if I sound cheesy now, but this is our script. And there will be things that do not go according to plan in 2015. I predict it in my life. There will be things that I did not plan. Thankfully, I got a script, and my job is to stay in character, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to stay with the lines that I've been given, and somehow in the midst of all the stuff that's gone wacko, to stay steady walking forward. So, three simple words were given to us, awaken, abandon, adorn. What does this have to do with light? Very quickly, let me tell you. Think about it. Isn't it easier to wake up when it's light? When light comes, I wake up a lot easier. It's hard to wake up in the dark. Would you agree with me? But when the sun's out, man, it's easy. Paul's just saying, live in the light. You'll stay awake much easier. When the light comes, it's easier to abandon what I need to abandon because the light exposes the stuff in my life that should not be there. And even though it sounds elementary, even as an adult, there's still things in my life I've got to get rid of, even though I've walked with Christ for more than 30 years. And then finally, adorn. Let's face it, it's easier to get dressed in the light than in the dark. Would you agree? Anybody like me, you get dressed in the dark in the morning? My wife sleeps in a little bit more than I do, so I'm putting my socks on in the dark, and sometimes I'll go to work with a a brown sock and a black sock. Yes, I will. Thank you very much. I'm not proud of it, but let me tell you something. Never happens when the light's on. You get it, don't you? So, there's a great story. I have to tell it to you. About a Christmas gift that was given to a single man who'd been single all of his life. He'd lived alone in a house for three or four decades. And one Christmas, a beautiful vase was given to him for Christmas. It was lovely. In fact, it was the nicest accessory, nicest piece of furniture he'd ever received. He put it on the mantle of his fireplace, and every day for about a week, he just admired this beautiful new vase. But it suddenly dawned on him about four, five, six, maybe seven days in to this vase in his living room that now 
he needed to replace the curtains. The curtains did not go with his face, and he certainly was going to keep his face. So he changed out the curtains. And, and then he realized, well, the carpet needs to go, and then the couch needs to go. And to make a long story short, that vase, the presence of that vase, completely and dramatically changed this old single man's house. That's exactly what the light of our Savior is supposed to do. He comes in. And one by one by one, everything dramatically changes as he introduces to us the age to come, even in this present age. May this be our compass in 2015. So let me pray for you. I want to pray a couple of prayers. In fact, if you're new here, hang with me. I'm going to pray quickly for every one of us in this room that God will help us to do what I just said, that we fully grab onto as much of the age to come as we possibly can in 2015. But then I'm going to pray a specific prayer for those of you that might be here today. And if you were honest, you would say, Tim, I don't think I ever took that first step spiritually. I mean, I've been to church plenty of times, but I've never really stepped over the line of faith and invited Christ to come into my life personally to be my Lord and Savior. If that's you and you've never done it before, I'm not going to ask you to get up and walk forward. But right where you're seated, I want you to follow me in prayer. And if the prayer I'm praying expresses the desire of your heart, I want you just to, I want to encourage you. It's your call. But just to pray this prayer and invite him to come in and start 2015 as a full-fledged follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, first of all, I pray for everyone here today. We have just looked at a couple of texts that help us just gain perspective. That we live in a current age that's full of conflict and darkness. But Father, through sending Jesus the first time, you've ushered in and given us a taste of the age to come. I'm asking now in Jesus' name, you would help us to fully, as much as possible, embrace the age to come. Help us to experience it ourselves and help us to be conduits of that experience for other people that we come in contact with. Prompt us, guide us, use us as we pray for others. May we be little Christs to the people around us. Now with your heads bowed, if you want to pray that prayer with me to invite Christ to come into your life, I'm going to just pray phrase by phrase slowly. And again, if this expresses the desire of your heart, I want to just encourage you to to invite him to come in. Dear Lord, I do want to walk in your light. Thank you for the taste that you offer us of the age to come. Jesus, thank you for coming 2,000 years ago to die on the cross for my sin. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of all of my sin. Now, God, I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. Thank you for the possibility of the age to come. Now, God, build me into the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, may I say, 
Congratulations. And I want you to do one more thing for me if you don't mind. You got a program on the way in, and you'll notice if you open it up, there's a little flap with two orange ribbons on the top and the bottom, one that you can tear off. If you would just fill out your contact information there and then just check that box at the bottom that says, Today, I prayed to receive Christ. What we'd love for you to do is on your way out, if you'll just drop that in the box, we have something called Starting Point here at Northridge that just helps people get started in their relationship with God, how to pray effectively and read and understand the Bible and just get started well in your walk with God. So if you'll just pop that in the bucket, we'll be able to get in touch with you and help you get started. I love you guys. Happy New Year. God bless you. Have a great week.